thank you for listening to Words and Nerds podcast. Danny V here. Words and Nerds pod are committed to Australian writers and aim to bring you conversational, sometimes deep, sometimes humorous episodes with a diverse range of authors and guest co-hosts. That's why I'm really excited to announce a partnership with Writing New South Wales. I've completed a few of their courses in the past and what I've really loved is the flexibility as I usually only get to pursue my hobbies early in the morning or very late into the night. These online courses give you the opportunity to learn from established authors such as Anwen Crawford, Kate Holden, Ryan O'Neill, Fiona Wright and many more. And the cool thing is you receive both tutor and peer feedback and you get to network with other writers. You can learn from anywhere and at your own pace. Writing New South Wales also offers on-demand courses that you can start anytime. I've just started the Getting Started with Picture Books with Elisa Darlison because it's a process I've always wanted to know more about. If you're a writer, reader, educator, book lover, librarian, aspiring writer, or if you just like me and like to know stuff, check out writingnewsouthwales.org.au. You can also sign up for their newsletter, News Bites, where you guessed it, words and nerds will appear. Thanks for listening and stay safe. Hi, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. My name is Sandy Docker, and I'm taking over today from your usual host, Danny V. And I am so excited because I get to speak to an author that I have long admired, the amazing Pamela Hart. Welcome, Pamela. Thank you so much, Sandy. What a lovely thing to say. Oh, it's absolutely true. Um, as, as a new person in the authoring world. I've known about you for a very long time. So, um, and we've never actually met before. So this is no, a, a thrill no, for me. Um, and for the listeners, we live in the same city. So it is a bit surprising that we haven't crossed paths. So it's, it's very exciting for me today. Pamela, you are an award-winning author of historical fiction and mysteries. And under your other guise as Pamela Freeman, you also write children's books. And you just shared with me before that you've been shortlisted for Book Week this year yes, with your book, Dry exciting. to Dry. Yeah, Dry to Dry. It's very exciting. Um, you know, it's always wonderful to have a Book Week book. Uh, it means it's going to be in all the libraries and every, pretty much every child in Australia will, in primary school will read it. So that's a fantastic thing to know about your book that's going to be read by so many kids. Yeah, it um, must be a thrill. It really is. And it's a, uh, I have to shout out here to Liz Anelli, who is the illustrator, because it is an extraordinary book um, in terms of illustration. You know, she's, I think she's a genius, frankly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, and I'm kind of feel like um, any awards that come out of the book ought to go to her. <clears throat> she doesn't think that, she says, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of person who kind of enjoys stick figures. <laughs> so, Same. you know, um, I, I look on these, these illustrators with uh, just amazement, really. Well, it's what, with children's book, it's that combination, isn't it? The magic words plus the magic pictures so it has to be a teamwork thing so I'm so excited for you for that now apart from all of the authoring that you do you also teach creative writing and you are a very well respected member of the writing community and I think it's probably safe to say that if there's something about writing and publishing that you don't know then it's not worth knowing Ooh, (laughs) that's a very big claim no pressure very very big claim um, I know quite a lot about Australian publishing. Okay, we'll put that caveat um, in. Then. And fiction, you know. <laughs> yes. Fiction. Yes. Um, yeah. So no. you are yeah. you are a little bit of a legend um, in, in the writing oh, nice. circle. So. <laughs> <laughs> what, so, is, what is great though is that we see so many of our students coming to publication. I mean, that's the really exciting thing. Um, you know, I teach at the Australian Writers Centre mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, the Aurealis Awards came out yesterday. One of my students is shortlisted for, for Best Fantasy Novel. You know, that kind of thing is really fantastic. It's very exciting to see. It is. And something that I often get comments about um, when I'm out and about is how supportive the writing community are of each other. And people are usually very surprised mm-hmm. by that. Um, we're such a small community and they think it's going to be competitive and, yeah. you know, we're trying to pull each other down, but we're not. It, it is no, such a beautiful community. It really is. And I think um, particularly 
<clears throat> within genres like say children's books or speculative fiction and certainly romance. I mean, the romance community is so mm-hmm. supportive of each other. Um, when you find, you need to find your tribe basically. Uh, yeah. And and when you find that tribe, yeah, they will support you through hell or high water. They absolutely will. And today in particular, we're going to talk about your wonderful new work of historical fiction called The Charleston Scandal. And can you tell us just a little bit about the book, please? Well, the main character is Kit, Kit Linton, and she's an Australian from quite a posh family. Her mother is from an aristocratic English background. Her father um, is high up in the Church of England in Australia, and but she wants to be an actor. And so she um, she's on the stage in Australia, and then she comes she comes to London to try her luck in a musical on the West End, and that's where we first meet her on the very first page when she's uh, auditioning. Mm-hmm. And really, it's about the book is about Kit figuring out where she belongs, whether she belongs in the world of the aristocracy um, that her her mother trained her for, or whether she belongs in the theatre. Yeah, that's actually what I've written down, that that Kit is a woman stuck between two worlds, the aristocratic world that she grew up in and then this desire of hers to be on stage. And her struggle to figure out where she belongs is a really strong thread that runs throughout the book. And I wanted to ask you, Pamela, what is it do you think about that struggle for all of us to find where we belong that is such a universal thing? Um. I can't remember who said it, but somebody said all drama is man's search for home in the universe. Ah. Obviously, I would say human rather than man. But uh, I I do think there's there's a truth to that. And I think sometimes sometimes that takes the the form of finding a place or a person in a romance, for example, or Mm -hmm. a, a family, like an actual group of people who come together to, to work together. And that's where shows like NCIS, for example, that's what that's about. It's about that family. They make that quite mm-hmm. explicit. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes the, the home you need to find is actually in yourself, that you, you need to know who you are. You can't find where you belong unless you know who you are. And for Kit, I think that's Kit's journey. And she's quite young. She's in her, she's not yet 21. She's just turned 21 when the book starts. Um, Yes. That's that's what allowed her to come to London was that her parents couldn't stop her. That's right. Um, And and so that's that's quite a young age to try to find mm -hmm. yourself. Um, I'm 47 and I think I'm still trying to find (laughs) myself. I could write a book about Kit 20 years later and I'm sure she'd be still struggling. We all do that. Because as we change, we need other things than we thought we needed. Um, but I do think that there are certain certain big things that you can decide for yourself at that age. <clears throat> and I think being a creative person is one of those things. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I think I write about this and about a young person doing it is because I get so many students who come to me in their 30s and 40s and 50s and say, I always loved writing, but um, Mm -hmm. I had to do the HSC, I went to uni, I had got a job, I had children, I had to be sensible. And you can see that there is a, there's a hole in them because they haven't continued with their creative practice. And it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. whether they get get published or not. It's not about that. It's about the process of creation. And I guess I wanted to show somebody who made up her mind young that that was Mm -hmm. who she was, you know, that it was possible to do that uh, and not take the safe way. And while she did definitely make up her mind very early on, you know, she definitely wanted to be on stage in the West End and become a star is is her end goal. She still struggles with that fitting in with her own world because back in the 1920s, it wasn't really an acceptable thing for a well-to-do lady to be on stage. It really wasn't. Um, The 20s is when our perceptions of acting change. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's partly due to films, that films were really becoming part of the culture. But it's also because after the First World War, some nice girls 
went into theatre. And they also, it got a, like RADA started, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts started. Mm -hmm. And so you could do a course, you know, it, it wasn't because up until then you got to be an actor by being a chorus girl yes. and showing off your legs mm-hmm. uh, at a time when when skirts were down to the ankle. You, you got up there and showed off your legs and quite a lot of your bosom. Yes. And, and that's why in the, in the phrase they used then, they were no better than they ought to be. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were perceived to be just a step up above prostitutes. Um, yes, so, and for somebody of Kit's background, that was a big absolutely. deal. Yeah, I mean, the only way through that is through Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was the way a lot of nice girls went. They went through Shakespeare um, mm-hmm. rather than into musicals. So she yeah. is actually breaking She's breaking more um, barriers than most readers will realise. Yeah, certainly more than I realized Um, because you know the 1920s it's not that long ago it's fairly first modern decade yeah and and to think that those attitudes prevailed then that you know there was a few times where she was called some not very nice things yeah by some of the characters um despite her um upbringing and her heritage Mm. um yeah and I I found that quite quite eye-opening for me to realize Mm. that in in fairly recent history um, you know, women weren't accepted on stage. No, and that, of course, is the basis for the scandal. Yes, and we're going to get to the scandal in a minute, but before we do, while we're talking about belonging, mm-hmm. uh, when Kit is in England and she goes to the sort of ancestral home of her, her mm-hmm. family, Barrows, mm-hmm. she mentions something that I found really interesting. She calls it race memory mm-hmm. when she was describing that, that sense of belonging when she walks through those gardens and through those those big doors what is race memory pretty much what it sounds like the idea that um that there's something in your dna that recognizes experiences uh that your many 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 generations of your ancestors have gone through um i put that bit in actually because when i i'm of irish and english ancestry mm-hmm. And when I first went uh, to England and Ireland, I really felt an enormously strong sense of recognition. Mm-hmm. And that might just be because I've seen and read so much about these places over, over my life. Yep. But there was something about the smell, mm. of, uh, in particular in spring. You know, if you live through a, uh, a winter in London, it really does come back to life in spring in a way that we just don't see here. No. And the thing that really struck me was how suddenly you have the smell of the ground. You can, you know, it can't, the, the actual earth comes alive mm-hmm. as it unfreezes. And there was something in that really resonated with me. Um, and I don't know what where it comes from, but the term that was used for it in the 1920s is race memory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've had friends describe places that they've gone to on their travels that they found their spiritual home mm. and I'm thinking it's that same sort of sense it's it is except that it um it's more like a a shock of recognition maybe mm-hmm. um uh, I don't know and also I mean in terms of kit it's also about the fact that it's an absolutely gorgeous house. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, the, the architecture is designed to make you feel like that. Yes, it, it would be quite um, seductive Indeed. to walk it's into a home. To be. It's designed yeah. to be. Yeah. Um, uh, it's designed to make you yearn towards it, and that, of course, is what she does. Yeah, she does, and particularly when she... Um, start spending time with Henry, who we're going to get onto in a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, and sees his home, which is even bigger and better and more seductive than Barrow's. And I can understand particularly, and again, coming back to her age at 21, mm-hmm. that would be hugely seductive to think this this could be where I belong. This could be where I belong, yeah. This yeah. could all be mine. <laughs> yes, one day I will go to Pemberley and, and feel the same way. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, um, as we said, she has left her upper class um, comfort zone to pursue becoming an actress and dancer. And the dance scenes and the theatre scenes that are throughout this novel are so richly described and such 
vivid um, scenes that I, I felt like I was in the theatre. Um, I can't mm-hmm. dance to save my life, but I felt like I was on stage with Kit and Zeke, who we will speak about as well. Uh, and they were they were just they they were alive these scenes. And I wanted to know whether you have a background in theatre or dance. No. Okay, well, you've done um, amazingly then. What I have is a background of being absolutely obsessed with Fred Astaire uh-huh. and, and with uh, 30s musicals, mm-hmm. um, but also theatre. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know if you've ever read any Naya Marsh, uh, New Zealand. She's a New Zealand detective writer from that period, um, just a little later than Christie started. She okay. started in the 30s. But she used to write. She's she used to write her um, her detective stories in order to fund her Shakespeare in New uh-huh. Zealand. Okay. Uh, but she she set a lot of her her books in the theatre in London at the time. So a little uh-huh. bit later than where I am. But same theatres, you see. Um, and then um, some theatre managers were very kind and let me go behind the scenes and and stand on the stage and. Mm -hmm. Uh, feel what it was like to look out into that audience and see what the green room is like and all of that kind of stuff so I was very lucky Um, I had to go to London for family matters but um, they were very kind in terms of letting me in and uh, and showing me around Mm -hmm. Um, so um, and then of course I read a lot of autobiographies of people who were on stage like uh, Noel Coward and Gertie Lawrence Mm -hmm. and people like that um, and and kind of tried to synthesize all of those things um, into that that sense uh, of what it would be like. Well, I think you did it in a, such a masterful way, which is a testament to your skill you. as a writer. Because I would have sworn that you had stage experience. Oh, excellent. <laughs> that's, that's, it's all smoke and mirror, Sandy. It's all that's the strategy that you need to do research, you yes. know, in order to make it work. Of course, of course. Yeah. Were you tempted when you were on stage in those theatres in London to, you know, bust into a soft shoe shuffle or? Mm, no. <laughs> uh, I can't say. I might have been tempted to declaim a little bit, but um, all the stagehands and the stage manager were watching me stand there. Okay. The stage, yeah, yeah. And I thought, no, just your photos, you know. <laughs> um, got a sense of the smell. Mm-hmm. which is really important, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And, and this um, the sense of the theatre that also came through there was that sense of family, that yes. the people within the company were very much a family and looked very out for one another. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's true now, Yeah, you know, because you live at very close quarters with people for, well, for the rehearsal period, you know, eight hours a day, sometimes more, Um for weeks and then you are with them every day mm-hmm. um, but you're also interacting with them on a heightened emotional level on stage and so I think um, that that sense of connection is very strong between actors mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah I think I think it's I just think that's how it works. I've certainly seen that in television. So I used to work for ABC Kids mm-hmm. um, as a scriptwriter and researcher, and you certainly see that happening on a shoot. You see the actors and the and the cast, the, the, well, the cast and the crew kind of becoming a unit yeah. um, on on a location shoot in in you know a way you don't in studio. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned Fred Astaire just a moment ago. Mm-hmm. There are quite a number of historic figures in yes. the book. We have the Prince of Wales. Mm-hmm. We have Fred Astaire and his Fred sister Astaire. Adele, who at that time she was more famous than he was. Much, much more. <laughs> which was really yes. interesting. Um, Prince George, Noel Coward, they're, they're real people, real people. from Tallulah history. Bangle. Let's not forget Tallulah. No, Tallulah, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I'd love to have dinner with her one day. <laughs> I think I'd be blushing the entire time if oh, I did, I though. So. Yeah. <laughs> she was definitely ahead of her time. Um, when you're writing about such famous figures from history, even though they're only side characters, so mm. to speak, they're not the main characters in the story, what considerations did you have to take into account writing about these people? Um, well, I think the thing you do have to take into account is their um what they chose to reveal of themselves to Mm -hmm. others at the time. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, although Noel Coward's friends all knew he was gay, 
he never admitted he was gay in his entire life. Right. Even after it ceased to become illegal. Mm-hmm. So in the 60s, for example, or, or, uh, and the early 70s, um, he never admitted it, you know. And he made jokes about it, but he never came out and said, yes, I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you can't have him doing that in a public way. So so when Noel um, is making it clear who he is to others, it's always within uh, a safe space. Yep. Um, uh, and so I kind of decided not to show him anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, just because he, I felt that would turn him into a main character if we could see how he had to shift things around. And, you know, and, and he, I didn't have room in the book for him <laughs> to be a main character. Um, uh, and so I always read their autobiographies, um, mm-hmm. ideally one that's written at the time and then one that's written later. That's the perfect Okay, yeah, two different Because they're often more honest in the second one, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. although he wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then you read the autobiographies of their friends. So I learned quite a lot about Noel Coward from Gertie Lawrence's autobiography because they were very good friends. Mm -hmm. And what I learned from her was what a good friend he was, how generous he was to people. Uh, and that was also a side of him, rather than the kind of bitchy, catty side that we think of as Noel Coward, mm-hmm. which is his public persona. I wanted to put in this person who would help a friend uh, anytime they mm-hmm. needed it. Mm-hmm. Um, so always, always the autobiographies, and then the biographies, letters if they've if they've written yes. letters. So the Prince of Wales, I read a lot of his letters oh, to okay. Frida. Um, just awful. <laughs> <laughs> just so soppy, so wet, just awful. Um, and um, uh, so you have to, I think you have to consider what choices they made about themselves mm-hmm. during their life. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you owe them a gloss. Um, I mean, there were things I chose not to put in about Fred Astaire, but I chose it mainly because of the readership rather right. than him because he okay. swore like a trooper yep um but he really swore like okay yeah and if you remember he's been on the stage since he was four and a half and it was a pretty rough old music hall environment mm-hmm. in new york mm-hmm. um so you know he really but he, but he was an absolute gentleman um to his public mm-hmm. and so i put a bit of swearing in but i didn't i didn't put in things i know he has said yeah. which I don't think the readers would have liked to read, no matter who said it, whether it was mm-hmm. him or somebody else. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's not that kind of book where you put a lot of swearing in. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think um, I think you have to kind of walk this balance being between making a person recognisable mm-hmm. but also bringing in your own understanding of them from the research, which may not be that public persona. Well, and certainly with somebody like the Prince of Wales, their mm. public persona mm. is a certain way and yes. it has to be a it certain be. And we're way. Yes, we are. But behind the scenes, there was a lot going on with him and I won't give any yeah. spoils yeah, away. No, absolutely was. That yeah. would, you know, that would, would make you know modern day people blush oh. um quite frankly <laughs> yeah one of the things you have to remember about 1923 is is when it's set and it, mm-hmm. it's set in 1923 because that's the year the estates were in london that's why I mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but uh drugs had only just been made illegal uh-huh. so they were still available on prescription right. from a doctor and most doctors were really annoyed at having to write prescriptions for them. So it was only 1920 that you, that you, since you could go into the local chemist and say, can I have some cocaine, please? Wow. Yeah. Okay. And they used to give laudanum to babies, which is opium yes. and alcohol mix. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and so um, they, they happened at the same in Australia about the same time. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a big push from the Americans to go along with prohibition. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, Britain and Australia stopped short of that, but they did make drugs illegal. And mm. you, that was when, prior to that, there was no drug trade. It was just like buying aspirin. 
Right. Um, and so the kind of whole um, criminality of it mm-hmm. didn't occur until it became illegal. And so um, 10 years later, you have people writing stories about the illegal drug trade. Yeah. Um, but in 1923, oh, you'd have a friendly doctor, you'd go down, he'd give you a prescription for morphine or morphine, mm-hmm. as they called it, mm-hmm. prescription for cocaine. Yes, he's got headaches, he can have some cocaine, you know. So it was not, although when we look at what they're doing in those parties, we go, oh, mm-hmm. my God, mm-hmm. it wasn't, it didn't feel as illegal to them as yes. it does to us because They'd done it their whole lives, you know, Every and their parents had done it. And, you know, so when when Sherlock Holmes takes, you know, I think it's a 7.5% solution of cocaine, he wasn't breaking the law. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so when we look back on that, on that period and we see it as being lawless, mm. it's not so... It's not really as bad as you think it is, you know, and they wouldn't have got arrested because they had a prescription. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, that we're looking at it through the lens of our time Mm -hmm. uh, and making certain judgments on it. And Mm -hmm. and I wonder what they would think if they looked at At today through their lens. Yeah, yes. (laughs) Um, Certainly it wasn't, it was frowned upon by more sober members of society, you know. And there were lots of articles in the newspaper and letters to the editor and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but it, wasn't, it, it wasn't, they didn't think of it as being quite as bad as we would. Mm-hmm. Mm. So we're going to come to the scandal that's in the book. And this is not a spoiler for anyone listening because it happens right up front at the very, very beginning of the book. Pretty so we're not, we're not destroying anything for, for readers here. And it's where they're at one of these parties with the, the, the hoi polloi of, of London society and the Prince of Wales is photographed with our protagonist, Kit. Yeah. And, and they're doing Charleston. Yeah. And the Charleston itself was the scandal, more yes. so than the fact that the Prince was dancing. It was, no, it's, there were two elements to the scandal. This is actually based on something that really happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, Elizabeth Mountbatten, Lord Louis Mountbatten's wife, was photographed dancing the Charleston with Fred Astaire. Uh-huh. And it caused quite a ruffle. Yes, which today we couldn't imagine. Which was uh, partly because it was an actor. Mm. She was dancing with an actor. <laughs> and partly because it was the Charleston. Mm. Um, I have all sorts of theories about why the Charleston was so scandalous. Mm-hmm. Um uh, but I do think we have to remember that it originated as an African-American dance. Uh-huh. Um, so okay. uh, I think there is always a, the jazz was was called black music yes. in, in Britain. Yes. Um, and or race music. Mm-hmm. The, the, the records were called race music. Right. So, um, so there was definitely that association. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I have wondered about is it's the first dance where the man is not leading. Yes. So everybody, it was, it's like doing, the, to really Charleston, you do it like Nutbush City Limits, right? It's all yep. in all yep. line yep. dancing. It's all, everybody's in a line doing mm-hmm. it together, mm-hmm. uh, which means that girls don't need boys to dance with, which is God forbid. <laughs> popular because there weren't as many boys around then. After, After World War One, yep. Um, but also, you didn't have a man firmly in control of these flappers, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, uh, so, I do think that might have had something to do with it. The other mm-hmm. thing is that um, the places, <laughs> the places where it was danced in America were often in slums, and they weren't mm-hmm. all that well built. And um, everybody's feet in a Charleston lineup comes down at the same time. Yeah. So, right, like that. And some floors collapsed mm-hmm. under, under the stamping. Everybody's right. at the same time. So it had yeah. this whole kind of um, a little bit unsavoury, a little bit lower class, a little bit mm-hmm. racially suspect. Mm-hmm. You know, everything about it seemed... Uh, just too much. And she was an actress as well. And she was an actress. (laughs) And funnily enough, though, only a few years later, um, there's an article about the Prince of, I know he can do the Charleston because he did it 
at a Navy mess dinner. Uh-huh. He demonstrated it for the Navy boys. And there was a nice little article in the, in the press about how isn't it nice of him to do that. Right. So we knew it was one of his favourite dances. That's really interesting. And and the way they deal with this scandal, the palace turns up, obviously, because we can't have the Prince of Wales mm-hmm. embroiled in a public scandal. And they decide that a slightly less offensive scandal would be better. And so they put Kit into the circle of Lord uh, Henry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, to say that she was actually with him yeah. that night, he just didn't uh, get caught he's in the right frame. on the edge of the photograph he's on the edge of the so. frame of the photograph yeah. yeah so that's who he was that's who kit was really dancing with and the prince of wales was just an innocent mm. band uh, yeah. bystander sorry and you know it's easy for us to look back at that and go well you know of course that's what they would have done you know back in the 1920s but and you touched on it just a moment ago we can see you know Certain similarities. Alice still cares about its image. You bet it does. Um, yep. in, in, in the current, mm. um, you know, news situation. Yes. You What's know, really and- funny is that um, one of the people there at the night of my scandal was the Queen Mum. Yes, she, she was. was well. Yes. <laughs> and I, I, were you conscious of those similarities while you were writing the book? Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, you have to be. I mean, anybody who lived through Diana mm-hmm. um, has to be conscious of those sorts of things. Um, and I think the the kind of rain on the media has only got tighter. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, I actually think the turning point in terms of them tightening down was the Sarah Ferguson toe-sucking incident, yep. which you may not remember. No, I do. Which, yes. you know, um, really... Um, did cross a line the Hayman Cross before, and um, and I think they really after that they really went into defensive mode. Mm-hmm. But they'd been there a long time. I must admit, I have um, I have exaggerated the press response in this mm-hmm. because up until Wallace Simpson, they didn't really report on the Prince of Wales in quite that way. Right. Um, in fact, so much so that that when he was going around with Wallace Simpson. The, the palace put a D notice on on it, which is saying, no, you can't print anything about this. Mm-hmm. So that the English English public didn't know anything about her almost until the point where he abdicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and it broke very late there. So they were really, they were really very much controlling the the narrative. Yeah, they were. And and that's something that I've got written down here in my questions that um another similarity of of today is that they were very tightly controlling what the press was putting out there Mm. to enable the public to think what they wanted the public very much so to think and and we see that today too. we do we do and we also see um a kind of parallel in the movie business which i also talk a little bit about in the book yes um where you have the rise of the publicist at this time, the movie mm-hmm. publicist, and they, they're, they're doing it, you know, they're kind of the more press there is, the more avenues of, uh, of publication, the more you have the royals trying to control it and um, publicists for entertainment also trying to control it and, mm-hmm. and uh, we can see where that's led us today really. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I found that the parallels really quite fascinating. And, and the other thing about fascination is that as a society as a whole, obviously not every individual, but we are fascinated with the royals and the aristocracy and particularly the scandals that surround them. And I'm, yeah. I'm like, what is it about that that sucks us in? I mean, they are just people and they do make mistakes like really you and I do. rich people. <laughs> Yeah, that's I mean, true. Really, really rich people who who don't actually deserve that rich. No, you know, like that wealth is inherited and mm-hmm. uh, profoundly unfair. So I'm a I'm not a monarchist. Um, I, I gathered that from the story. From, yeah, yeah, um, because uh, you know they acquired their wealth through. Um, through force, through oppression, mm-hmm. through colonisation, um, through uh, treading down a huge number of uh, countries, including Australia um, and the Indigenous people here. 
and why? Oh, God wants us to be in charge, you know? I mean, it's ridiculous. Now I think they earn their, they earn their money basically um, by being a tourist attraction. Mm-hmm. And so they're worth, their, their palaces and so on are worth quite a lot to the British economy. But prior to that, mm-hmm. um, and, and prior to being taken off the privy purse, um, you have to kind of go, yeah, what are you for? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. The, the mirror that you turned on the behind the doors of what mm. happens in those families when Kit's going to parties with Lord Henry and seeing what's happening there, it, it was quite scathing. So I'm not surprised when you say that you're not a monarchist. It's based, um, it's based on contemporary accounts. Yep. So I didn't put anything in that book that I hadn't read about from a contemporary account. I wasn't surprised by any of it. Um, you know, power and wealth do breed some yep, pretty abhorrent behaviour. Yeah, um, and yeah. as, you know, the old saying, absolute power um, corrupts absolutely. And fascination there, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And and you, you do still want to know, I mean, whether it's the royals or whether it's, um, you know, celebrity culture, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, there's all sorts of psychological theories about why we do that, mm-hmm. but there's no doubt we do. Yeah. And um, I think the, the, the issue of worth, I think, is what's at the centre of this book. Mm-hmm. Um, finding her own self-worth, recognising the worth of others, whether that's good or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that is something I'm very interested in you know, in terms of social justice, for example, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but particularly in terms of women, um, where women's worth has been um, underestimated and, and pushed down for, you know, millennia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a period where they're breaking out of that, where where people are saying, no, that's not good enough. And um, and that wave of feminism in World War One and, and after that um, I think is absolutely fascinating uh, and it's one of the reasons I write about that period because mm-hmm. um, there's so much is changing you know so many so many doors are opening um, and um, and then they get shut again in mm-hmm. the 50s but they're opening up in the 20s you know mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's really fascinating. It is and it's also part of Kit's journey not just to find the place where she physically belongs, whether it's, you know, from her roots or on the stage, there's a a very strong thread running through the novel of, and I don't want to call it a love triangle because that makes it sound so... Oh, go on. But but it is, essentially. I'm owning owning the love triangle. It's there. Between Lord Henry and Zeke, who is her uh, dance partner. My boy, Zeke. And And, um, Henry, I have to say, is very gorgeous and swish. He is. He yeah. is. Um, and Zeke is um, a Canadian who's yep. from a pretty humble upbringing, yeah. not the best of upbringings. And I can imagine that readers will fall into camps of Team Henry or Team Zeke. Uh, I was firmly Team Zeke, and I don't want you to give away what happens in oh, the I love. I will say, I will tell you um, something that lies behind Team Henry. Mm-hmm which is that that's what Adela Stair did. So Mm -hmm. Adela Stair ended up marrying the third son of a duke. Right. And that's why I have Henry in there, Mm -hmm. because I knew it was possible. I knew it was possible for an actress to marry into the aristocracy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, she went to live in Ireland and never went on the stage again. And that's why Fred Astaire did movies, because lost his stage partner. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And Adele had never wanted to do films, so um, she hated watching herself on film. Yeah, so, right. Um, so, so the Henry story is actually based on a true story, which mm-hmm. is, is Adele Astaire falling in love with this guy. Wow. So without letting the listeners know who haven't read the book yet, where Kit falls, because, and well, that's actually, a, it's not a love triangle, it's a love quadrangle, I would say. There's Lord Henry, there's Zeke, and then there's, the, also the option of choosing neither of them, neither of them. and going yeah, her and own really strong way. For me. Yeah. yeah. Did yeah. you know when you started the book which way Kit would go or was it a surprise to you as you wrote no, it? No, no, I, I always knew. Okay. 
All right. Which I don't always. I no. don't always. Like The Soldier's Wife, which was my first um, mm-hmm. World War One novel, uh, I had no idea which way she would go mm-hmm. in that. Uh, none at all until right at the end, till I was writing the scene. I didn't know. Right. Yeah. Right. But with Kit, you always knew where Kit she was I always going. Knew. Yeah. Okay. Um, something that Kit and Zeke have in common is that they're both trying to find their independent way in the world, Kit breaking free from what's expected of her and her upbringing, and Zeke trying not to turn out like his father, who is not a particularly nice bloke. And I thought that dynamic would be a really interesting discussion, you know, if you're in a book club, Mm -hmm. for example, about how much are we in control over our own destiny and our own choices and how much are we a product of our upbringing? Well, I think it's more than a product of your upbringing. Um, If you look at Kit uh, Kit and and, uh, Perry, who is her best friend, Mm -hmm. she's a chorus girl, um, it, it wouldn't have mattered what kind of person Perry was. Given her class background, she was never going to get the lead. No. No? No. Not in Britain in 1923. So it's not only about um, what our upbringing, how our upbringing shapes us. It's also about what our upbringing means to the opportunities that we get, Mm -hmm. even by other people. Mm -hmm. And um, the more I think about this, the more I think that's actually what's relevant Um, because I think you can overcome a lot of your of your family ideas and, and beliefs and, and um, you know, moulding. But you can't change what society says about you. You can't no. change the box that society puts you in without an enormous amount of luck, mm-hmm. an mm-hmm. enormous amount of hard work and an enormous amount of talent or intelligence or skill or whatever. And, yeah, so I, I think it's much more societal than it is personal mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and I mean you know I'm sure we all know people who we think oh you know she could have been or he could have been if only mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and that that includes the trauma that we experience as children obviously that changes who we are and um, um, and makes it harder to get out of that box mm-hmm. um, so I mean, I, I, while I do believe in that whole kind of, yes, you know, work hard, do your best, become who you want to be, I absolutely believe in that and I'm yep. somebody who did that. Yep. I also recognise that I was very fortunate in a lot of the things that happened in my life and the people who influenced me and the mentors that I had and without those, where would I be? I have no idea. Mm-hmm. You know, I might still be working in the public service, which is my first job after uni. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, not, you know, and I might have done a great deal more good directly in the world. <laughs> no, don't say that. <laughs> but you know, do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. I, that kind of um, can we overcome our our background assumes that our background is an individual issue, mm-hmm. but intersectionality. So it's not, you know. Um, so no, it's not. Uh, and and in this day and age, particularly in Australia, where the, the class system, mm, like it is in the UK, mm, isn't quite the same thing here. Isn't it? Thus, isn't it? Well, not not so much it's in, not in on the, the surface, but who is running the country? The yeah, people and that, who went to the private schools. That's where I was going to head with that. You know, we don't yeah. see it as an obvious thing here. Yeah. Um, and you know, in a modern world, there are supposedly more opportunities. There are still other constraints depending on, you know, perhaps, you know, your country of birth or your country of origin or any other number of things that no matter how hard you work, those barriers are going to be there. Um, And, you know, some extraordinary individuals do overcome them. Yes. But then they're used to prove that anybody can do it, you know, which is um, we need to overcome. This is getting very deep and dark. It is, is, isn't it? It <laughs> is. People the impression that they're <laughs> like that, you know? No, no, but what, what, what the connection with the book I find, and it's one of the reasons why I love reading historical fiction, it's, it's you know, one of my favourite genres to read, is that when we look back at a particular period in time, it gives you a different perspective on the time we're living in ourselves and and, you, and an understanding of that, which is what I love about historical 
fiction. That's what I love about it too. Yeah. But I just I do just want to say that I wrote this book because I wanted to write something for fun. Oh, there's a lot of fun in it. <laughs> there not are... because I wanted to kind of unpack no, no. societal problems. <laughs> no, um, we went down a bit of a rabbit hole there, yeah. didn't we? Um but no, the, the fun and, and the, the the love story and, you know, the dancing and the glitz and the glamour of the 1920s. And I think, you know, no matter when you're born, you know, I certainly did not experience the 1920s and, um, you know, my parents did not experience the 1920s. We do have that kind of nostalgia of that era because it was so glamorous. So glamorous. And it's really interesting. It's like the 60s, you know, mm. um, one of the reasons I chose this story for the 1920s was because I wanted to look at that glitz and glamour. Um, and it was a pretty small proportion of the population. Yeah. That could afford the glitz and the glamour and the yeah. and the cocktails and the, you know, just like in the 60s, it was a pretty small proportion of the population that were hippies. Yes. You know, but this is the kind <laughs> of image that we get. And um, it's one of the reasons I I wanted to put Kit through a difficult patch in the book mm -hmm. where she has to go get a job. Yes. yes. Um, because I did want to acknowledge that this was not how most people lived. You know? No. No. And that's, um, that part where she goes and gets a job in a dress shop, and, again, this is not a spoiler, so listeners don't worry, uh, she gets a job in a dress shop where she models the clothes mm. for the noble women. And this was something that, I had no idea was a thing oh, yeah. back then. You didn't try on your own clothes. A model tried them on and you looked at the model without seeing the model mm. to see what they looked like. And I found that really fascinating. When you were doing the research for this novel, and there, was, there must be an awful lot of research that you did for it, were there any other things that surprised you perhaps? You know, that surprised me about that era. Um, look, probably not. Because, you know, I had done four books mm -hmm. ranging from, from 1914 to 1921. Mm -hmm. um, so I was reasonably well acquainted with, with the period moving into this 1923. Um, I, I guess um, some of the things that are surprising are... are um, things like the transport and that kind of stuff, which is in very much in the background. It's not a, a thing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but how tiny the tube trains were. They're tiny. <laughs> um, uh, and, and when you look at the clothes, how, how small people were. Mm -hmm. you know, So people are, uh, and that was a double thing, partly because they were English um, and partly because they didn't get as much protein. Um, mm -hmm. um, so all the the kind of contemporary accounts of World War One talk about these tall Australians. Yes. So that the 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 Australian soldiers were several inches taller mm -hmm. than the average British man, mm -hmm. um, and that was because we had a lot of meat, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and you see the same thing now that um, migrant the children of migrants are often quite significantly taller than their parents. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not genetics, it's actually how much meat you get, how much protein you get as a kid, you know. Yeah. And so those kinds of things, kind of looking at clothes, going, oh, my God, they're so tiny. And, and you can go back and look at the Jane Austen kind of clothes and they are tiny, tiny little people. <laughs> <laughs> um, so those kinds of things, I guess, you, you, when you're looking at the actual physical makeup of the world mm -hmm. um, and realising... Um, realizing things that you don't think about on a normal because we always see actors from our time playing people in that time yeah um we and most of the actors we see in the 30s are actually american who are also mm -hmm. high meat diet so much you know again taller and uh stronger mm -hmm. um so so this idea of like the average british um man was like five foot eight mm -hmm. okay yeah so those kinds of looking at the actual physical stuff of yep. of the period makes you realize how things have changed yeah now before i let you go i wanted to ask what is next for you oh it's very exciting it's a murder mystery 
Ah, a complete yes. departure. Yes, a complete departure. It's called Digging Up Dirt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yes, it's a complete departure for me. Um, oh, I came out of writing uh, Desert Nurse and I had done so much research for that book and I just wanted to write something I didn't have to research. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and something was really kind of upbeat. And so this is a contemporary murder mystery set in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you like the Miss Fisher books, the, the Franny Fisher character mm-hmm. books, mm-hmm. it's like that kind of level of mystery but brought up to date. Right. Um, so it's not a dark, grim, forensic serial killer kind of book. Mm-hmm. More okay. like a classic murder mystery but, but again, contemporary and, and Australian. Mm-hmm. I'm very excited about this. I've always yeah. wanted to write mystery stories and so I'm, I'm really excited. Excellent. Yeah. I can't wait for that. That's in uh, June, I think you said June. it was coming That's out. Right. Yeah, excellent. Thank you so much for joining me today, Pamela, and for talking about the Charleston scandal. It's such a beautiful, rich, glossy, gorgeous tale with real heart at the centre of it. And I'm I'm so grateful for Danny for um, asking me if I wanted to do this takeover because I got to read the book and it was just so much so much joy in it and, and so much joy speaking to you. Lovely. Um, can I uh, put a little plug in? Yes. Andy? So um, if your listeners go to my Pamela Hart website, just Google Pamela Hart, mm-hmm. um, just make sure you don't go to the... Um, Jazz singer in Austin, Texas. <laughs> Pamela Hart. Um, so if you Google Pamela Hart author and they sign up for my newsletter, they will mm-hmm. get a 1920s novella for free. Ah, so we can spend a bit more time in that era. Spend a bit more time in that era, yeah. I might have to go and do that then. Not He's a character in that one too. Uh-huh. Excellent. Thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners for joining in. And thank you to Danny for allowing me to take over the Words and Nerds podcast today. It's been lovely talking to you, Sam. <laughs>